You're listening to The 66, a podcast where we study the books of the Bible one at a time, and today we are in the book of John. We are getting into chapter 3 today. We have spent a few lessons so far on John, and we're getting into chapter 3, and we're going to try and cover the entire chapter. Well, I guess we're going to try, and we're going to have to make it work. Uh, we're going to do the whole chapter in one episode. There's so there's a great deal of stuff here in chapter 3, and we said this every time for this John series, you know, because there's so much loaded into the text. But I really think there's this a... This one's not that bad, though. 30, 36 verses. Mm-hmm. And some of the chapters in John are just so so long. I'm Drew Kaiser, by the way. Uh, oh, yeah. Andrew, we were gonna, to we're going to say our yeah. names. Yeah. We talked about this. Yeah. <laughs> We'll put it in the show notes. They can have it in the show notes. <laughs> Whenever we decide to actually start doing show notes, we'll put them in there. Uh, yeah, I failed to mention I'm Andrew Kingsley, co-podcasting alongside yeah, Drew just, Kaiser. I, it, it never feels natural to say, I'm Drew Kaiser, yeah. and this is Andrew Kingsley. Yeah. And together, we are <laughs> the 66. The 66 podcast. But um, just in case you're a first-time listener. Yeah, that's our names. That's who we are. I'm the squeaky guy, and Andrew's the one with the good voice. I've been told I have a voice fit for Buick commercials, as a matter of fact. Oh, yeah? By a Buick. Uh, she works for Buick, and she's like... Well, she only a Buick people. employee would make that statement. I mean, yeah. most people will say radio or something. Yeah. She also told me I have a face for radio. I'm Ooh. not sure if that was a compliment or... That was not. That was not. Yeah, uh, but anyway, so we're on John three. Yeah, the Bible. We can cover this. Um, we're we're going to divide it up as usual: reading first, thinking second, making ap- application at the end. Mm-hmm. So I hope that you're following along with us. A lot of our listeners are listening to us in the car, which I think is good. Yeah, that's when I listen to podcasts. So if you're listening in the car, do not get your Bible out. <laughs> and read while while you're driving. But uh, if you are at your computer or you're just relaxing and listening, uh, it would be helpful to get the Bible out and read along with us, John chapter 3. And we're going to divide this up into two parts. Basically, we have a section on Nicodemus and a section on John the Baptist. It's not, not pretty, but it gets the mm-hmm. job done. So that's how we're going to divide it up. And I want to start the reading section with just a brief biography on Nicodemus. Verse 1 says that he was a man of the Pharisees. So not all the Pharisees were bad. I mean, this may be the first good one that we've met. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you start reading the New Testament with Matthew, uh, I'm probably missing somebody, but uh, usually the Pharisees are cast in a negative light. Here's one that I like, Nicodemus. Mm-hmm. And uh, he will come up again and again throughout the book of John, particularly in chapter 7 and I think again in chapter 19. But he was a man of the Pharisees, the Pharisees, of course, being a strict sect of legalists, the majority sect among the Jews, but not the most powerful. The most powerful mm-hmm. would be the Sadducees. The Sadducees uh, did not believe in the supernatural stuff like demons, angels, resurrection, life Even after like death, spirits. Period. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. They um, they had they held only to the Torah, the first five books yeah. of the Old Testament, the books of Moses, the Pentateuch. However, you want to books look of at prophecy that. and those kinds mm-hmm. of things were not. They didn't consider them as canon, at least. Did they yeah. use them at all, or is it just? They I, didn't? I don't know. I, I, I think maybe you put it right when you said they don't consider them as canon. They, mm-hmm. you know, surely they were familiar with them. The Sadducees were actually the majority on the Sanhedrin, the ruling body mm-hmm. of the Jews, but uh, the Pharisees outnumbered them greatly. The Pharisees believed in angels, demons, the resurrection. Uh, they We would have a lot in common with the Pharisees, but the problem that that really riddled them was this legalistic judgmental, perfectionist attitude that they had. Outward. Or really, yeah. a big focus on outward appearance more so than yeah. Religiosity, you know, yeah. just uh, worshiping in vain, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Nicodemus, though, was a little more honest as a Pharisee. And so we're going to get to see a good example of them. 
Uh, no mention of the Pharisees, by the way, in the Old Testament, which means they surfaced in the intertestamental period, which is also when the Sadducees and Essenes and other splinter groups of the Jews started to come up and uh, have their own slant on the holy the, the Hebrew scriptures. Mm-hmm. Secondly, we are told that Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews, also verse 1. Probably means that he was a member of the Sanhedrin, the council comprised of 70 men plus the high priest, the highest judicial body of the Jews. Now, they were under Roman authority, so... Mm-hmm. They. This is why, you know, at the end of the gospel, when Jesus is on trial, they had to have a Jewish trial before the Sanhedrin, and then a Roman trial before Pontius Pilate. They had to get Pilate's permission to execute Jesus and even to execute the execution. So they did not have the right to issue capital sentences, but they did have some power still and ruled over the Jews. He was a part of the Sanhedrin. Uh, Jesus called him, in verse 10, the teacher of Israel, which means he was a respected teacher. Uh, went to hear, and what's unusual is he's going out to hear a Galilean. And in uh, chapter 7, verse 52, he's taking up for Jesus among the Pharisees. And they make this ignorant statement, you know, that, uh, what do they say? See, are you from Galilee too? That was mocking him. Uh, Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. I'm pretty sure that uh, there were prophets from Galilee, not counting Mm. Jesus, who was one. I forget there's a list that I've seen somewhere. I Mm. forgot who they were. (laughs) I want to say Jonah was in there, but I'm I'm not for sure. Oh, wow. Anyway, they were totally wrong on that. Uh, Yes, don't Google if you're driving. If you're listening, Google. Prophet Galilee. Uh, Then uh, we also see that he came to Jesus by night. Why did he do that? Well... You know, some would say this means Nicodemus was a coward. And certainly there were believing Pharisees who were afraid to confess that they believed in Jesus because they didn't want to be put out of the synagogue. And John comments on them at John chapter 12, verse 43, saying, They love the praise that comes from men more than the praise that comes from God. But I think that uh, we're too hard on Nicodemus if we call him a coward because he did come to Jesus and confessed that Jesus was a man from God. So Mm -hmm. I give him credit for that. Another distinction that uh, we find in Nicodemus was his sincerity. Look at verse 2. We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. You know, I compare that with the other Pharisees who tried to combat Jesus' miracles, not by discrediting the miracles, but by saying that he worked the miracles by the power of Beelzebul, the prince of the demons. That's Matthew 12. Mm -hmm. So Nicodemus wasn't doing that. He was just saying, you know, you can't argue with these miracles. You are a man from God. Yeah, and there's something I want to say really quick about verse 2, about him coming to Jesus by night. Yeah. Uh, I'd never thought about this before until I read Guy in Wood's commentary on this. He says it could have been he wanted just to enjoy an uninterrupted conference with Jesus. So instead of having to worry about the crowds and the other Jews trying to, you know, question him and attack him, he could just have a time where he could actually talk to him. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's one way to look at it, but, you know, either way... I don't think... I. This is a, all speculation and opinion. Exactly. But, that's but I, I don't think that John would have included that detail if it did not signal to us that it was dangerous for Nicodemus to come out and see Jesus, at least mm-hmm. in terms of his career. Well, there's he could have the, lost his position. There's John, uh, John, by the way, says other things about you know the Pharisees and how much pressure. I'm thinking about that passage again in John 12, 42 and 43, that there were a lot of Pharisees that were afraid to admit they believed in Jesus. And, and, and Nicodemus, I'm sorry I interrupted you, but... Uh, no, you're fine. Somewhere he says, uh, we, we know, verse 2, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Who is we? I think he's talking about himself and a number of other Pharisees. Mm-hmm. I don't think he's saying, you know, the wife and I we were, you know, talking over the kitchen table tonight at dinner, and I just decided to come out because we know you're a teacher come from God. I yeah. think we we means the Sanhedrin, many on the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, some of them, mm-hmm. um, but he was the only one coming out. So 
Yeah, I think you know. some of them definitely believed. I've got a, a few questions about that statement he makes, but I don't know if I should save that for the next part or not. But what do nah, you think? Go ahead. And I'll, I'll ask you this also. Coming to him by night, do you think there's any kind of connection to the imagery between light and darkness that John has all throughout his letter, or, or all throughout, I'm so used to talk about Paul, all throughout this gospel? Because um, you know when it talks about Judas meeting with the with some of the priests that happens at night and uh, the anchor commentary I got off your shelf talks a lot about all these evil and negative things that happen at night and they just kind of make a mention of it here at this yeah. verse and this is John throughout the whole gospel of John and in his epistles mm-hmm. he is the light versus darkness guy yeah. And even in this own chapter, uh, verse 19, this is the judgment. The light is coming to the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. Whoever, Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. That's the end of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. Jesus is saying this to Nicodemus. So I think you're right. I think there is something oh, to yeah. this symbolically. It's more than just a fact, you know, that it came at night. But I think that Jesus, it helps Jesus. Jesus is kind of using that as a symbol of what is happening here. Nicodemus in the dark comes to the, the light. true light, Jesus mm-hmm. Christ. And, and like kind of literally him, and encouraging him. symbolically, I guess. Yeah. So hmm. I think it's interesting that Jesus closes his statement to Nicodemus with that. And I went ahead and read it because I was kind of going to skip over it, but you made it made it interesting, so uh, I went ahead and brought it up. Let's look at verses 3 through 5, the meat of this conversation. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again... He cannot see the kingdom of God. Born again there can mean born from above. It's translated that way in other places, but uh, we translate it here born again because of what Nicodemus says next. Uh, he says, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So he had to have been thinking of the sense born again. But John uses this ambiguous term that can mean two things at the same time characteristic of John because what he's talking about here is conversion which is both being born again and born from above. Mm-hmm. Verse 5 Jesus says he gives some explanation truly truly I say to you unless one is born of water and the spirit he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Uh, let's talk about that more in application okay. if you don't mind. We'll, we'll come back to that he gives some conditions for being entering the kingdom of heaven that I think are very practical. So uh, I'll, I want to save that. Okay. Um, and I want and I want to save verses six through eight for this for the next part. Oh yeah, definitely. Me too. So let's skip down now to uh, verse thirteen. Still, this conversation Jesus is now instructing Nicodemus. He says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And then he's reminded of this story in Numbers 21 of the bronze serpent of Moses and compares himself to that type of Christ. He says, Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And of course he's referring there to the crucifixion. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And I want to talk about that verse in both the think section and the apply section. Because, okay. you know, that that's the most famous verse in the New Testament, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. The golden text, it's sometimes called. And mm-hmm. it may deserve that honor, because there's a mouthful in there. But there's a lot to discuss, both in terms of thinking more deeply and practical application. Verse 17 He says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That's a really important concept here. The reason why Jesus came was not to condemn 
And the reason for that is the world was already condemned without Jesus. Exactly. The, the world was condemned because of Crossed sin, not because Jesus came and show, shone a light on the sin. Mm-hmm. And that's what he gets into in verses 19 and following. He came on a mission of salvation. And uh, he did not come to judge the world. The world was already judged. He came to save the world. Mm-hmm. And we forget that sometimes, but I think that's a very important message. Yeah, and I think this is definitely more of John's imagery of Christ being God. This whole gospel has everywhere in it Christ as deity, Christ as divine. Verse 13, where he talks about it, no one has ascended into heaven except, except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And then we talk about God sending his Son not to condemn the world, but to save it. And we know Jesus' mission was to seek and to save the lost. Yeah. It's things that just keep popping up throughout John. Right. So that wraps up the section on Nicodemus and almost divides the chapter in half. The The last part of the chapter is about another man that we've already talked about a little bit, John the Baptist. And uh, I want you to look at verse, just to set it up, that um, verse 26, they come to John and they say, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, they're talking about Jesus, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. And this corresponds with verse 1 of chapter 4, that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. So John's mm-hmm. disciples are getting a little worried here about popularity. Yeah. You know, uh, what, Master, mm-hmm. Jesus is getting more disciples than you. And John sets them straight in a very admirable way. Uh, verse 28, here is his answer. You yourselves bear me witness... That I said, now this is what we read in verse in chapter 1. He's reminding them, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. So John is the friend. Jesus is the bridegroom. That's one of many analogies that he makes to show that he is less than Jesus. Yeah, he's always, he's showing that he doesn't have this sense of rivalry with rivalry with Christ. Right. Like apparently it really surprises me that his disciples do though. Well they just but, they don't get it. They they had a lot of admiration for John, as you and I would. Yeah. You know, he was a he was an amazing person in his own right. Mm-hmm. Um and then verse thirty, he must increase, but I must decrease. And then he says in verse thirty one, he who comes from above is above all, kind of reiterating what Jesus said to Nicodemus in verse thirteen. He came from above. He descended. Uh, He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven, that's Jesus, Mm -hmm. is above all. And the earth would be John. Yeah. He belongs to the earth. John said, this is me. I'm from the earth. I speak in an earthly way, but he is from heaven. Yeah. So we've done wedding imagery, and now we're like this heaven and earth imagery. Mm -hmm. And he continues. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets a seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. And that's a verse we referred to already in connection with chapter 1, verse 33. Mm-hmm. That Jesus had the Holy Spirit fully. And then there's these different levels. You know, the apostles who were baptized with the Holy Spirit had... Uh, you know, that measure of the Spirit. Then mm-hmm. Christians who had spiritual gifts in the first century, miraculous age, had uh, an extraordinary measure of the Holy Spirit. And then mm-hmm. all Christians, including you and me, have an ordinary measure of the Holy Spirit, which we call the indwelling of the Spirit. But mm-hmm. this concept's kind if of we brought can out call there. it ordinary. It's kind of a funny yeah. word. I mean, right. I, I follow your train By of thought. Comparison. It's a funny word, yeah. Ordinary in the sense that every Christian has it. Yeah. You know, that's that's what I mean there. Yeah, and I definitely, I don't want to, I guess just a, a little bit of rehash on that. Colossians 2, I think, definitely speaks to that point where he says, in Christ the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And so that kind of, you know, the fullness of God in that sense is always, was Spirit obviously not vision. in the apostles. Yeah. And, so I think that kind of clarifies what we mean when we say, The spirit without measure is given to Christ. Yeah. Let's finish the chapter. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son 
shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Remember, Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world. The world was condemned already. The wrath of God is already on him. That language matches well what verse 17 tells us, that the world is, and verse 18, the world is condemned already. The wrath of God is on us. Believing in the Son and obeying the Son is the way to escape the wrath of God. As we think about some of the things in chapter 3, I want to bring up a few quick questions before we dive into some of these meteor matters. Verse 2, Nicodemus says to Christ, uh, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, if we go just by the text that we have so far, Christ has performed his first sign at the wedding of Cana, and then if you want to call what he did in the temple a sign, then he's done two at this point. So I wonder, is there room here for other signs that Christ has done, such as healing people or or whatever it might have been? Is there room for that interpretation here, or is this probably just referring to... Definitely. I mean, you know, I think John has been very clear, and if he's not that clear now, at the end of the book, he'll be very clear that he's just selecting seven signs for the purpose of illustrating who Jesus was and uh, illustrating his teachings as well. You know, the whole statement at the end of the book, if, you know, this is just a sample, if all the, if I told all the signs, there, I suppose there wouldn't be enough books in the world. Let me just read it because I'm... Now, there are also many other signs, many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that that would be written. So, so there's room for some I mean, John, John's not even pretending to give you a complete list. Yeah. And I don't think if you added, and I've seen the list of every miracle, if you added up every miracle from Matthew through John, you wouldn't have, I don't even believe you'd have half of them. Yeah. I don't know that for sure, but I certainly don't think that every miracle is represented. I think that's a, a pretty well-educated guess. Uh, another thing, in verse 12, where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, he says to him, If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe them, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And I really think that this is, I guess, the reason behind why Jesus speaks in parables a lot, why he teaches in parables He's trying to get these people to understand heavenly things. But here he is talking to the teacher of Israel, a guy that's going to know more than your average Joe, I would assume. And not even he is able to comprehend this heavenly teaching. And he says, well, I, if I can't even get you to understand an earthly teaching, how do you understand a heavenly teaching? Yeah. So I think that kind of gives you the spirit behind the parables that you see in the other Gospels. Uh, that Jesus teaches, and I think that's a pretty interesting thing to notice. Maybe it. um, I also think he's rebuking Nicodemus a little bit. Mm -hmm. He has higher expectations for this man who's a member of the Sanhedrin, a Pharisee, a teacher in Israel, and he can't understand that idea of being born again. I mean, I want to give him the benefit of the doubt after Jesus says you must be born again. But he is the guy who said, wait a minute, you're talking about going back into my mm-hmm. mother's womb, being born a second time? I mean, I think that I would have realized that he was using a metaphor or speaking to spiritual mm-hmm. things, but you know, surely Nicodemus, I don't know if he was mocking him, or surely he didn't really sincerely think that Jesus was talking about being re- physically reborn. And I'm glad you said that, because that reminded me of something I had forgotten to mention, what do you think about the possibility, because I have heard this, I don't buy into it, but what do you think about the possibility that Nicodemus is not a genuine guy looking for truth, but that he's just a smart aleck, and kind of sarcastically saying, 
we know that you are a teacher from God because no one can do what you're doing unless God is with him. Just kind of in a... You well, know, he's I guess doing a, a voice like that. Yeah. But, yeah, but that's... That's what I, I'm wondering. And then he says, uh, well, how can I be born, you know, do I go back into my mother's womb? You know, just kind of being a smart aleck. But, I don't buy into it, but yeah, how can we tell? Maybe if I only had chapter 3, but then in chapter 7 where he's coming out and he's saying, now wait a minute, you know, um, you know, he, in chapter 7 he's he's standing up for Jesus. And, um, yeah, he know, asks in verse 51, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Yeah, and then they start mocking him. And then the bravery with which he joined Joseph and, you know, cared for the body of Jesus and buried him, mm-hmm. that that really was a brave move for both of those men. And I look forward to talking about that. So I, when you when you go to chapter 7 and chapter 19, you know, Nicodemus, I don't, I don't think he was a smart aleck. But verse 4 is... I mean, it's really perplexing <laughs> how this teacher of Israel, a ruler, how he could... I mean, it, it's, it may just be a way to move the dialogue along. And he could have just been really confused. He, he, he didn't understand confused. what he said. Mm-hmm. He, he knew it wasn't... You know, it, he could have been in the sense of, I know you're not saying that I need to be born again physically. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. I think that might be the spirit of it. Yeah. I, I don't think he's being a smart aleck. Okay, last quick one, if we've right. got time for it. Verse yeah. 22, where Jesus and his disciples go into the Judean countryside, says he remained there with them and was baptizing. So Jesus himself was baptizing people here in John 3. But he wasn't. Okay, he wasn't, just well, his disciples chapter, were? Well, yeah, because... Chapter 4, verse 2, there's this parenthesis, Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. Oh. But that doesn't, that doesn't answer your question. Hmm. I mean... Well, I mean, that that's a, a definitely a good thing to bring up before I go with this. But is this the baptism of John, or is it... Because if it's Jesus' followers... I think it was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, like we talked about last week when we were discussing John's baptism. Mm -hmm. I don't know what he was saying. You know, John, another part of John's baptism was the Messiah is coming. Look for him to come when the Messiah himself is at least, you know, administering the baptisms through his disciples. I don't know what he says regarding the Messiah. I would have to guess that he was saying, I am he. You be yeah. baptized in my name, but it's still not like current Christian baptism, which says to look back on the sacrifice of Jesus and to be mm-hmm. baptized into his death because he hadn't died yet. Mm-hmm. There's some kind of transitional ritual, you know, of baptism that I think had to have been similar to John's. But uh, you raise a good question. I don't know why I've never thought about that before, but that's kind of a curious thing. Yeah. That's a good answer. I feel good about it. Okay, well, let, let's get into verse 6 through 8, which I skipped because I, I knew we'd have to read it again for this section. But this is a much-talked-about section of Scripture in John 3. Uh, Jesus says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. I'm reading from the ESV. There are a number of ways that that is uh, translated. The confusing part is in verse 8. Well, in verses 6 through 8, this Greek word pneuma, Mm -hmm. which is related to our word pneumonia, which has to do with, you know... A pathology of the respiratory system, the inability yeah. to breathe. Like a pneumatic device. Or, or a pneumatic like that. device that mm-hmm. uses pa- the power of air. So I'm using those examples so you can get the sense, those of you that don't know Greek, that this word pneuma has a connection to the wind or the air, the invisible breath. Uh, it can be Pneuma can be translated as spirit, capital S, as in the Holy Spirit or spirit, little s, the spiritual nature, or the spirit of man, or 
the wind, breath, air. And all of those are seen in verses 6 through 8. What all three we, of those. Yes. <laughs> and what do all three of them have in common? Can't see them. Right. And that's what that's the word play. Um, you know, Nicodemus is like, <laughs> born again, again into actual mothers and the actual birth. How do I do that? And Jesus is mm-hmm. like, I'm talking about spiritual things here. Yeah. I'm talking about invisible things. Um, but some people really quibble over, you know, misunderstanding. Verse 8 in particular. Let's read verse 8 again. The wind... Now think about if it says spirit. The spirit blows where he wishes. And you hear his sound, but you do not know where he comes from or where he goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. So... You know, that's if you translate it that this pneuma is the spirit in verse eight. Mm-hmm. If it's the wind, it's the wind blows. It's an it's an example. Look at the wind; it blows where it wishes. You hear it sound, but you don't know where it's going or coming. Yeah. Uh, so this has been interpreted in a number of ways. Number one, some say, well, this is talking about a direct operation of the Holy Spirit on the alien sinner. This is Calvinism. So. You know, predestination is at play here, and the Lord exercises His sovereign will to save whom He will without our understanding of who will be saved. So in that sense, the Spirit blows wherever He wishes. He may pick Andrew, and He mm. may pass over Drew. That's one interpretation. Okay. Second, second interpretation uh, has just talking about the mysterious action of the Spirit without, you know, as much detail as the first interpretation. It's just talking about the Spirit and His mysterious... That's that we don't know where He goes, where He comes from. Yeah. Okay. You know, the Spirit will do what He will. But if you look at it really carefully, this is an analogy to the wind, and it does symbolize the unknown, but it has to do with the person who is born again. He doesn't say in verse 8, So it is with the Spirit... He says, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a difference there. What You know, I think what he's saying is basically this. What happens to the Christian convert cannot be understood by worldly expectations. You remember, Nicodemus is a Pharisee. And to Pharisees, once a dog, always a dog. Once mm-hmm. a prostitute, always a prostitute. Once a tax collector, always a tax collector. Maybe even once born, you can't be born again. Kind yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, obviously, born a statement. Jew. Birth is very yeah. important to them. You know, Gentiles, not allowed. You know, so mm-hmm. once a Gentile, always a Gentile. You're an outcast. You know, so that's the way they looked at things. And, and God is saying sinners can be cleansed and become children of God. First uh, Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 you you were homosexuals, you were murderers, you were idolaters, you were adulterers, but you were washed, you were cleansed, you were justified, you were sanctified by the Spirit of our God in mm-hmm. the name of our Lord Jesus. So, you know, this is a mysterious thing to humans. How God saves and how God can transform a prostitute or an adulterer or a homosexual or a you know, idolater into someone who follows Jesus. The Pharisees didn't understand that kind of thing. And it's an Mm -hmm. invisible spiritual thing. It's not a physical thing like, you know, physically being born again. Yeah, and I I think the play on words here is really cool. And when people ask you questions like, why do you you think you need to learn Greek? We've already got English translations. This is one of them. Yeah. This is one of the big places because you cannot see in English that that play on words is there because it's the exact same word in Greek. In English, we have two different words for it. But in the Greek, it's the exact same words. It is a play on words. It's got a double meaning here. Yes. It's it's a, it's a just, I guess, a very interesting, very, for lack of a better word, cool yeah. part well, let's, of the let's do ancient this. text. Let's do this for our listeners. I'm going to read verses 6 through 8 again. And then every time I come to the place where the word uh, pneuma is used, I'm going to say pneuma instead of the translation. 
Okay. Just so you can see the wordplay. So, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the pneuma is pneuma. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The pneuma blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the pneuma. So he's saying you must be yeah. born of water and of the spirit, pneuma. And then that, that just gives Jesus this analogy to the wind. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's connected in that it's mysterious and unseen. Yeah. And there's a reason this was the same word. You know, wind, spirit, breath, it's all kind of, they're all wrapped up together in this word. It reminds me of one of the Proverbs of Agur. How do you say it? Agur. Agur. Sure. Proverbs 30. He has all of these numerical Proverbs, and this is way off, you know. But he has a proverb in Proverbs 30, verses 18 and 19. Three things are too wonderful for me, four I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a maiden or virgin. So, like he's saying, what he's saying there is love is mysterious, but he gives three analogies to it. An eagle in the sky. You can't, it's not like a jet where you see the white cloud following the jet. Mm-hmm. A serpent on a rock. I don't know how that serpent moves over that rock. It leaves no tracks and he has no feet. You know, and then uh, the ship on high seas. You can see the waves a little bit, but after a while, there's no trace that that ship has passed through the seas. And that's the way love is. That's what Agur is saying. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, isn't that just like what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus? Nicodemus is like, what? You know, explain this to me. Tell me how people can change and, and go to heaven and be, be in the kingdom, be in your kingdom, mm-hmm. be under your rule. And Jesus is saying, this is spiritual, and you're too physical in your thinking. Yeah. How's yeah. that? I, I think that is great. And that leads us, I guess, into our next thing, so make sure we have time for it. Oh, it's we've this, got to make time for it. Yeah, there's this word that John uses, or I guess that Christ uses of himself, uh, that John records, calling him the Son of God. You've got the, some good stuff on that. The only son. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that that's we we've been reading uh, from the ESV, both of us, right? That's what you've been reading from, mm-hmm. and it departs from the you know traditional King James translation of John three sixteen, which says, "For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son." Mm-hmm. The ESV says He gave His only Son, and other translations will have "unique Son" or "one of a kind Son." And this has become more controversial than it should be. You know, I there I learned I heard for years that one of the problems with modern translations is that they have done away with the phrase only begotten son. And I never understood why that was not why that was a better translation than unique son, one of a kind son, or only son. Mm-hmm. Let me read to you from um Foy E. Wallace's A Review of the New Versions. Now this is uh, 19... I should have looked this up. It's 1973. So some options besides the King James and the American Standard Version are now coming out on the market. And Wallace doesn't like it. Let me read you the opening of chapter 6, The Only Begotten Son. The emasculation of John 3.16 and the removal of only begotten by the new versions is the capital sin of the modernist translators. I won't do the voice That's anymore. That's a good impression. I never heard him speak, but having, that's pretty much how I read this it in my is head. Just, having yanked the word virgin out of Isaiah 7.14, he's talking about the Revised Standard Version there. He's mad. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they pursued the evil work begun by ejecting the word begotten from John 3.16. The purpose of these infidel theologians and revisionists in the elimination of these two words from these two related passages is the obliteration of the miraculous in the birth of Jesus Christ and the deity of his person. The exclusion of these two words from these two texts. Why does he keep combining Isaiah 7.14 with John 3.16? The exclusion of this takes God out as the father of Jesus. Does it do that for you? Uh, when you read his only son, do you think, well, God is not Jesus' father? 
That's not what I think. No, that's not what I think either. I mean, um, it's used of the daughter of Jarius in Luke eight forty two. He had an only daughter. That doesn't say he had an only begotten daughter, but it says he had an but it's only monogenes. daughter. Yeah, it's monogenes. Monogenes. Yeah. Only begotten daughter, mm-hmm. only daughter. Okay, listen to this. And these translators knew it when they did it. And they know it now. So he knows their motives. He can read their thoughts, read their minds. It's amazing ability that Wallace had. For it was done with deliberate design. This we shall prove by their own testimony in the succeeding chapters. John 3.16 is mistranslated. Holy horrors. I'll leave, I'll leave it right there. There's a lot more. This is 30 pages on monogenes. And, the word uh, Batman doesn't come in after no, Holy Horrors. No, no, no. This is not Robin. This is Foy E. Wallace. Uh, he never said anything halfway. I mean, it was always like the end of the world. Yeah. Or whatever he was saying. Now, a much more moderate thinker and a much more credible Greek scholar was Hugo McCord, who uh, was contemporary with Wallace, uh, maybe a little younger than Wallace, but he translated... The New Testament. I have a copy of his translation. In back, he talks about monogenes, and uh, he says a lot of good things about it, pointing out something that you did that the term monogenes is used more than just in John three sixteen and with yeah. reference to Jesus Christ. He's mm-hmm. Jairus' daughter, mm-hmm. and another example, which is even better, is Isaac. Yeah, because Isaac Abraham. had seven brothers. That's in Hebrews, isn't it? Uh, Hebrews eleven seventeen. Yeah. Um, and and then he points out that that in Greek, only begotten would not be monogenes. Only begotten would be monosgenetes. That's a, that's only begotten. Monogenes doesn't mean the the word begotten is not in monogenes. It's more of the idea. Here's the definition from the big Greek lexicon. You know the Bauer, Danker, Gingrich, the big one. Yeah. The number one definition is simply only unique. Yes. And then the second definition is only born. That is soul. And then parentheses begotten, comma, child. So. Okay, so they see begotten in it. Well, yeah. McCord says that that would be, if he wanted to. I, if, I think they're saying it's, you know, it's just kind of implied. I don't know that. Well, listen. I'd have to, the, to do a little more research and see if there's actually. Anywhere in Greek that they do that, that they use that phrase he mentions, and it should be mono, whatever the uh, noun form of that word is, or monos, whatever the noun form of that word is. Well, he, notes he for makes further some points. study. He he makes some points here. He says it would have been inaccurate for the Holy Spirit to describe Isaac as monogenetes, only begotten, for Abraham, his father, begat seven sons besides Isaac, one of them older than Isaac, Ishmael. Uh, accordingly, Isaac was not an only begotten, but God called him a yakid, Genesis 22.2, a unique being, one of which no duplicate existed. Uh, yeah, I think that's that's, that's definitely good. the heart of the idea of monogenes. Yeah. There's no, no duplicate. duplicate, because there, the original word for son... Is is weos or weos, however you want to pronounce it, yeah. and God has many of those, uh, yes. just as Abraham had many uh, children. God right. has many children. Uh, we are called the sons of God, yes, uh, the children of God. So, in one sense, so the ESV doesn't really do the best job either. I guess not. He his Unique, only son. Is, and McCord raises this point too. I'm trying to find it here. Uh, the first it's something that we kind of understand when we okay. read it, and we almost don't even realize what we think about it when we read mm-hmm. it. When we read only son, we get it. You know, we're sons, but we're not sons like Christ is sons. Right. Son or but he's not the only son, and he's mm-hmm. not begotten. You see that that's the thing. It, yeah. it doesn't emasculate. The de- the deity that whatever Wallace said, yeah the word begotten does not make or break Christ's deity there. The, if anything, it hurts the concept. This is what I've always thought when I was a child. I heard people railing against the NIV and other translations that challenged only begotten. I thought, but begotten means that you were you had a beginning. 
that you mm-hmm. were fathered, but the word was God. So yeah. he's son in a sense other than having been begotten. He is son in the sense that he is subordinate to the father. He's submissive to the father. Uh, he has a relationship with the father, that kind of thing, but not in the sense of being begotten. And then, you know, to challenge the ESV, he's not the only son. Like you said, there's lots of sons. Yeah. Uh, he is unique, mm-hmm. which is what McCord likes, one of a kind. I don't. I didn't look at translations, but I think the best. The idea here is that there's no duplicate. That Jesus is God's unique son, one of a kind son, not like any other son or daughter, not created. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that's definitely the heart of this. And you know, the begotten part. I don't know. Wallace might have something about the humanity of Christ and that word begotten, being born or. But I don't, I don't think this is meant to, and again, I could be wrong, but I don't think this is meant to show the human nature as well as the divine nature right here in this phrase, monogenes. I don't think that, I think the point behind it is exactly what, you know, the lexicons will tell you about monogenes and that only unique, nothing else like it. Well, and you see really, that in Abraham and Isaac, I think. What really fires me up is, is how Wallace... Uh, challenge the motives of the translators. Yeah. You know, they did it deliberately to take away the deity of Jesus Christ, and I'm going to prove it. And no, they well, did, did they it. take out John chapter one verses one through five? Right. Because if the they Jehovah's left... Witnesses did, but but yeah, not these translations that he's talking about, the modern ones. You know, if they leave John one to five. They don't. They did it to be more accurate the than the King James version. That's why they did it. Yeah. And what that is, that whole only begotten son thing, what it is, is an effort to get everybody to keep reading the King James Version. Yeah. And That's this, what it is. I mean, it's still common today, and I hope I don't step on a bunch of people's toes here, but if I do, then, you know, it's still common today in some places that the only Bible you can read is the King James Version. Oh, listen, I... Uh, when any I was, other translation yeah. is, is sinful. We actually had a guy in college, uh, there was a guy in college that made a big, big stink on uh, a trip about the the New King, or the King James Version, his own version of the Bible. You can't, you know, what do you... They had some argument, and the guy got his verse from the NIV. He said, oh, well, that's, you can't take it from the NIV. You know, King James says this, so this is what it is. Yeah, so the King James became his standard. Yeah, and that was like, the, his his standard is, it's like that is, there's no debate, the King James Version is the only inspired word of God, nothing else that you read is. Yeah. And that's where well, it came I, When I was first starting to preach, I was preaching at this little congregation, uh, and I had the New American Standard Bible, which is regarded as the most accurate translation by a lot of people. Yeah, you can use it's that. It's just what I was raised on. Cheat on Greek homework. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. And I was studying Greek at the time, and uh, you know, I started preaching very bad sermons at this place because it was horrible. But mm-hmm. uh, they were gracious enough to give me give me a little preaching job so I could learn how to preach. But um, after the first sermon, this uh, elder came up to me and he goes, "If you don't mind, we would like to ask you to preach from the King James Version only. That's the translation that we stand behind." And I, I said, okay, of course. And I probably would still do that today. I preached from the King James for a lot of, a long time, but I love that translation. I mean, it's beautiful, but it's not perfect, and it's not what mm-hmm. Paul wrote. It's a translation of what Paul wrote. It's yeah. a translation of what John wrote. That's my big thing with it. It's like, don't deify it. Now, there, are there bad translations on the market? Yes. Are there bad paraphrases and other things on the market, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you want to get down to say the King James is the original or that's the only inspired word of God, then I would I mean, I would take it a step further and say, well, actually no, the original autographs are the only inspired mm-hmm. word of God. And guess what? We don't have most of those. So now, now what do you do? Because mm-hmm. their thing is you know, that's the, it's older, it's more accurate, well, actually, uh, it is not more accurate. The most accurate is going to be the original autographs pinned by the authors themselves, and most of those are not around. 
Yeah. All right. Get off the soapbox. Sorry. Take a break. We'll come back in a minute with some very brief applications. make this quick unfortunately we did it again you know on the on the second part we just got to talking and, and uh, thinking and uh, but there are some very practical aspects of John 3 that we want to highlight we can't do this without giving some kind of a little outline on John 3:16 there's so many of them out there about uh, how this is the golden text of the Bible and how it means so much. I think uh, one outline that I enjoy has five points, beginning with the sinning world, for God so loved the world, and then the loving Father, God so loved, a willing Savior that He gave His only Son, a workable plan that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's certain salvation. So, sinning world, loving Father, willing Savior, workable plan certain salvation. There's a million other um, outlines that you could do for John 3.16. In fact, I thought about you know, looking around my office and finding all of the different outlines of it, but I might get a little dull after a while if I did. Okay, here's number six, outline number six. You know, yeah. Only preachers would enjoy that kind of thing because they're like, hey, I could preach this and then yeah. preach on John 3.16 for the next six yeah, weeks. Here's my six different sermons. Um, on the same topic. We also need to talk about conditions for salvation because I, I feel like, you know, Jesus is pretty clear in John 3, 5 that there are conditions for salvation. He says, Whoever is born of water and of the Spirit can see the kingdom of God. Uh, or unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Water here has to be baptism, and I'll say more about that in a minute. Self, um, spirit here has to do with following the guidance we receive from God's Word, which has been revealed by the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2.10, 2 Peter 1.21. Uh, now, I've talked with some friends, denominational friends, who do not believe that baptism is essential for salvation. And I've asked them how they interpret this passage. And they said, well, that has to do with some you know, ceremonial washings or... That has some figurative application related to the Spirit. Do they say anything about physical birth? Because I've heard that before. I'm talking about... Oh, they say, well, he's not talking about physical... Oh, amniotic fluid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. talking about actual water. I have heard that one before. I've heard all kinds of ways to try to get around it. But look, this, this chapter is full of baptisms. You know... Water and baptism have to be connected in this chapter because when you get to verse 22, Jesus and his disciples are are baptizing. John is baptizing in verse 23 at Anon near Salem because water was plentiful there. There's water and baptism in the same verse. You get to chapter 4, we're still talking about baptisms. The, ba- the disciples of Jesus are baptizing more than the disciples of John. So Jesus was actively baptizing. That's a strong indication the baptism is what he's talking about here. Not to mention Mark sixteen sixteen, First Peter three twenty one, Acts two thirty eight, Acts twenty two sixteen, Galatians three twenty seven, Romans six three and four, and on and on and on. Passages that connect baptism to salvation. Yeah, speaking of Romans six three to four, I don't want to cut you off. No, go ahead. Got, okay. Speaking of Romans 6, 3-4, I want to look at verse 30 of chapter 3, where John says, He must increase and I must decrease. And speaking about baptism, when you look in Romans chapter 6, that phrase from John the Baptist is wrapped up in what baptism is all about. You know, baptism is not the one thing that saves us for the rest of our lives. You don't just get baptized and then your ticket is punched for the rest of your life. You can do whatever you want. Um... And that is seen, and what John says, 
He has to decrease while Christ increases. And that is true in all of our lives. You can see what Paul says about baptism. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? There's this imagery of life and death. Verse 4, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Look in verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for the one who has died has been set free from sin. Verse 9. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So once we become baptized, this whole idea of we must decrease and he must increase becomes our entire life. Yeah. All right, one more thing. Um, Some folks don't like the concept of baptism being necessary for salvation and interpreting John 3, 5 that way because of passages like Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, which says, By grace you have been saved through faith, it is not your own doing, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's a gift of God, and we, we believe that. We don't believe that anybody can earn his or her salvation. We don't believe that at all. Definitely. But we do believe that the kind of faith that saves is an obedient faith, as Paul puts it in Romans 1.5, the obedience of faith. And there are some pretty strong indications of that in the whole context of John 3. You can't just read John 3, 5 by itself and think that you can interpret it. I want to compare it to what he said in other passages, What a statement that Jesus made and a statement that John the Baptist makes. So we have Jesus saying, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Then look at what he says in verse uh, 21. Whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. He's talking about doing something. You can't deny that. Yeah, Wherever James d- is all about, you know, he has the whole section on faith and Active works. Faith. They they go hand in hand. Right. You're not saved by your works alone, but your faith produces, you know, your faith works. It does things. If your position is that salvation can occur with you just sitting in your armchair and changing your thoughts, You've got to contend with John 3.21 and John 3.36. Now, this is John the Baptist's words, but he says, Look at the connection between belief and obedience. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Mm-hmm. You have an antithetical parallelism, which was a common form, form in, in uh, Hebrew literature at the time of John. Line 1 has whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. So that's the condition of the person who has eternal life. He believes. Mm-hmm. Now, and the antithesis of that is the person who does not obey the Son. That person, the wrath of God, remains on him. So belief and obedience are shown to be parallel there. The opposite of belief is not obeying. Yeah, I, That is so clear. I don't see how anybody could say that belief does not include any action at all. I know that the Bible says you're not saved by works, but that's not what we're teaching. What we're teaching is there are conditions for salvation yeah. that are works of faith or, you know, the the obedience of faith, not the attempt to try to earn your salvation, yeah. but a responsiveness to to God's wishes for your life. Yeah, I mean, we just said that baptism is not the thing that saves you. You know, baptism is not the end all you know, well, if we can get somebody in the water, then they're saved, and you know, we have saved a soul, and now we can put that on our list for the year. You know, mm-hmm. baptism is best described as really a Christian wedding ceremony. It's where you make the commitment, and you actually, you know, it's where you make your commitment to live a life for Christ. And this yeah. is where I am going. I, I am washing the sins away. I am being buried. And I'm going to rise in a newness of life. I'm going to walk according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh, which is all of um, Ephesians. All of Ephesians is about walking according to the Spirit, not of the flesh. And that's the the place where we find that uh, phrase about being saved by faith and not by works alone. 
Yeah, well, we're out of time. We thank you for giving us an hour of your time. It's a real honor to us. We love hearing from you. Uh, Several of you have been contacting us and telling us you're using uh, this material in your Bible classes and your sermons and your um, articles that you do or just in your conversations with your family. You're listening to us on the road, riding home, or whatever. We just really appreciate it, and it means so much to us. Drop us a line if you got the time, Kingsley at ARCFC.com or Kaiser at ARCFC.com. Follow us on Twitter at The66Podcast. Check us out online, the66.net. And join us next time as we talk about John chapter 4.